So, uh, this morning I want to start off with a question. Have you ever been motivated by someone because of how faithful they are? Because when they say they're going to do something, you know they're going to do it. And so therefore that drives you to stick through a tough time with them or do something that's really hard that you otherwise might not do because you know that the person that you're doing it for is faithful. That they will do what they said they would do no matter what. When I was a young kid, uh, I loved hockey. And I wanted to play hockey more than anything else. The first time I saw, I remember seeing hockey, I fell in love. I was like, that is the sport for me. That's the sport I want to play. But there were two really big problems for me to overcome to play hockey. Number one was my mom. My mom hates contact sports. She just doesn't like the idea of them in general. And she hates the idea of her baby boy playing them even more. And so my mom was like, I want you to have all your teeth. I don't want broken bones. We have enough ER trips with you. I don't really want you to play hockey. The second problem was hockey is expensive, and we didn't have a lot of money growing up. You know, it's hundreds of dollars in equipment and skates, and in, you know, each season costs hundreds of dollars, if not thousands of dollars, depending on the team you're on. And it just wasn't really feasible in our budget for me to play hockey. And I'm talking like from the time I'm little, like six years old, just begging, I want to play hockey, I want to play hockey, I want to play hockey. Well, if you fast forward to when I'm 13 years old, at the end of my seventh grade year, we're, we're sitting at our kitchen table. It's my mom, my dad, myself. And it's just one of those days where, you know, I'm like, man, I really want to play hockey. Like, I'm tired of just shooting pucks by myself in the basement. I get the occasional pickup, you know, street hockey game with friends. But other than that, you know, my only ice hockey experience is playing NHL 95 on my Sega Genesis. I'm like, mom, dad, I really, really want to play hockey. During this time also, so this is the end of seventh grade, my grades were terrible. Uh, I, I think my average, you know, from sixth and seventh grade, my GPA was about a 2.2. Couple, you know, a couple B's in there, a lot of C's, a lot of D's, an F or two. My GPA was terrible. I hated school. I didn't want to do it. And so as we're sitting there at the table, my dad looks at me and he goes, if you can get a 3.0, you can play ice hockey. And for a minute, I was shocked. But then I was really motivated because I knew my dad would come through on his word. My dad was faithful to do what he said he would do for me. From the time I was very little, I, I was four years old, maybe five, and it's Christmas time, and we're out below the tree, and it's Christmas Eve, and my dad's like, let's write your letter to Santa. What do you want? And so I'm listing the normal stuff that he already knew, but at the bottom of the list, I throw a curveball out there. I want a little red wagon, too. Christmas Eve, right? I've said nothing about this little red wagon before. And my dad goes, okay, Santa will bring you a little red wagon. So he tucks me in bed, and he gets on the phone, and he starts calling every store in Denver looking for a little red wagon. All the stores are out. There's one clear across South Denver that he's going to have to drive and go to. So he gets in his car, he drives, then of course he gets it home and it's not assembled, so he's got to assemble the little red wagon so that it's ready for me Christmas morning. So I wake up and I come out, and there's my little red wagon. 
And I can just tell you time and time again, my dad said he would do something for us or get something for us, and my dad would come through on that. And so I knew when he told me, if you get a 3.0, you can play hockey, that I could play hockey. I knew that somehow, some way, he'd work extra hours or whatever it took, he would come up with the money, he would talk my mom into allowing me, I would be able to play hockey. And so I was motivated. I wasn't very good at school yet, so I missed the 3.0 that 8th grade year. But ninth grade year, I had a 4.0. I got straight A's because I was motivated to play hockey, knowing my dad would come through. So sure enough, ninth grade year, I have a 4.0. 10th grade, I play ice hockey. It motivated me to do something I hadn't done before. It motivated me to get good grades because I knew my father was faithful to his word. That he would do what he said he was going to do for me. And today as we continue our sermon series, Motivated by Invisible Realities, I want us to keep that in mind with God. Because we're going to see somebody who is motivated by God's faithfulness. Somebody who is motivated because she knew that if God said he was going to do something for her, he would do it. No matter what the exterior looked like, no matter what the natural looked like, she was confident in what God would do. Today we're going to start in Hebrews 11, 11 through 12. And if you've seen on social media, I've joked a couple times where I'm preaching on Sarah, though not my wife, Abraham's wife. So as we go into that, it's Hebrews 11, 11 and 12. It says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. See, it was Sarah's faith, motivated by God's faithfulness, to do what he said he was going to do, that allowed her to conceive a child when she was old. Really old. We'll get into the story here. Not just like kind of old. Really old. So if we rewind to start with, her name wasn't even Sarah, it was Sarai. And Abraham's name was actually Abram to start with. Abram was a man of faith. He lived worshiping God. He lived obeying God. He lived glorifying God. And so God comes to him and tells Abram that he's going he's gonna to bless him greatly. Now Abram's old at this time. and He's like, okay, you're going to bless me greatly, but I have no descendants to pass this on to. It's like, whatever you bless me with is going to go to one of my distant relatives. And then God promises him that he's going to have an heir. He promises Abram that he will have an heir even in his old age. So that whatever God blesses him with will go on to his direct descendants, not off to you know the, the crazy uncle or cousin or nephew or whoever it was. It will go to Abraham's son and his descendants from there. So again, Abram is old, and about the time he's in his late 80s, and Sarah's in her late 70s when all this is coming along, 
he says, uh, well, Sarai says, you know, this isn't working, Abram. Why don't you take my servant Hagar as your wife, and you can have a child through her. You'll have an heir through her instead. And now this was like, first of all, that's a bad idea. I don't care if your wife does suggest it. Like, that is a bad idea. That is not something you're wanting to do there, okay? Abram should have like, no, God's going to provide. And instead, they don't. They go through with this plan, and Ishmael is born. And everyone, this was, this was a legitimate practice, by the way. This wasn't like something crazy. This happened back then. And so everyone's thinking, great. Abram now has Ishmael. Anything God blesses him with will go to Ishmael, and through Ishmael, everything that God promised Abram will occur. But God doesn't work naturally like that. He works supernaturally. And especially considering the covenant he's going to make with Abram, this is going to be something he is going to do through his power, through his promise, and not through the workings of people. And so if we fast forward about 13 years, God comes to Abram again. And this time, he's going to establish his covenant, but he's going to tell Abraham very directly what's going to happen. And this is actually when he changes Abram's name to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. And so he changes his name, and he promises Abraham that his offspring will inherit the land of Canaan. This is a great area to have, like this is a wonderful blessing, and Abraham's descendants will be in it and working the land and receiving the blessings of the land, and they'll have this land of their own. And so this is a great promise. And so Abram, now Abraham, is thinking, great, this will all go to Ishmael and my descendants through him. But God is not done. God elaborates further. And he says, as for Sarai, she will now be named Sarah, which means princess. And he says that through her, kings will be born. People who will rule nations will be born. She is old. She is almost 90 at this point. And Abraham's reaction is exactly what most people's reaction would be. Like, what? Like, he goes so far as to say, no, 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 God, you mean through Ishmael. Through Ishmael, let all of this be done. God says, no, you're going to have a son. His name is going to be Isaac, and it's going to be through Sarah. And I'm paraphrasing all of this, but this gives you the idea of what's going on. Then a few, or we actually don't know, a couple days later, maybe it was the next day, But God comes and visits Abraham again and reiterates what he's going to say. And this is in Genesis 18, 9 through 15. And when he does it this time, he does it within earshot of Sarah. Sarah is going to hear this promise given that it's going to be through her that Abraham's descendants will be blessed. It's going to be through her child that God will make the covenant. So again, that's Genesis 18, 9 through 15. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. 
the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Then or the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. So first of all, I don't want us to be too hard on Sarah. Because we do have to realize that she is, like, if this was all to come through, she would be 90 when she had this child. It's not like they haven't been trying. I'm sure they've been trying a long time to nothing but frustration and sorrow and bitterness. And what would even have allowed her to naturally conceive has stopped long ago. So Sarah hears this, and it just has to be a laugh of bitterness. Like, now? I'm 90. I'm tired. We've tried this. Now? And of course, she gets called out by the Lord, and rightfully so. Like, God can do anything He wants, including this. And she, deep down, knows it. And so Sarah is kind of every kid when they get caught doing the wrong thing in this moment. She's like, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. Right? We've all caught our kids, if you have kids. Uh, Yeah, I think of Kylie. One day we caught her. There were missing cookies. They're smeared all over her face. Like, it was clearly her. And she's like, no, it wasn't me. I didn't eat those cookies. Sarah knows she's in the wrong here. She's right to be afraid. She just doubted God while he's right there. She's like, no, wait, no, no, no. It wasn't me. I didn't do that. And in that moment, she knows. She knows she should not have been doubting God. That's why she's afraid. And we see, from that point on, she has faith. That God will do what he said he was going to do. We read it there in Hebrews. That because she had faith, she was able to conceive at that point. At 90 years old. Because God is faithful. That's why she had the faith. God is faithful to do what he said he would do. Let's fast forward to the very end of this story. Uh, Genesis 21, 1-7. through 7. And we're going to see God's faithfulness on display. Said the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. There it is. God's faithfulness on full display. A son born to a hundred-year-old man, and more impressive, if we're honest, to a 90-year-old woman. A son born to them in their old age. 
and Sarah gets to laugh again, but this time it's not a laugh of bitterness, but it's a laugh of joy. That God was faithful to her. He fulfilled his promise, and they had a son, Isaac, whose name means laughter. They have this son, the son of promise, who God is going to continue that covenant. He starts with Abraham through Isaac. See, Sarah's faith, her motivation was that God himself was faithful. He will do what he promised he would do. And so this morning, I want to ask you, are you motivated in your life by God's faithfulness? Are you able to look past what's natural? Because a lot of times God has made promises that if we look at the circumstances around us and we see everything that's going on, we go, I don't know how God's promise is really going to come through here. In those moments, are we still motivated to live lives of faith because we know that our God is faithful, that he will do what he has promised? I want to take a look this morning at some of those promises and you know, there are many more than I'm going to go over this morning. But there's a few I really want to hit. And I want to say, are we looking at these promises and going, God is faithful with these. And therefore, I can live my life as God has asked us to, as God has commanded us to. Because we know that God is faithful to fulfill his promises to us. First of all, God has promised us salvation. God has promised us salvation through his son, Jesus. Right, one of those first Bible verses you're ever forced to memorize. John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. That's a promise. If your faith is in Jesus, you have salvation. You will have eternal life with God. That has to be the start, because if we don't believe that God's going to come through on that promise, then what are his other promises to us? We have to start there. We see it again. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That promise is throughout Scripture. That's two verses. There's, you know, the whole Bible speaks to that. That God was going to send away, that he was going to send his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for payment for our sins. And that if we have faith in that, that we believe that, that Jesus is Lord, that he died on the cross for our sins and was raised again. If we believe that, then our sins are forgiven. God is faithful to do that. It doesn't matter what the sin was. If you're sitting there this morning thinking, my sins are too many, or this, you know, maybe God can forgive this group of sins, but he can't forgive this sin over here. That sin is too bad. You're wrong. God's promise is that he will forgive our sins if our faith is in Jesus Christ. That is the best promise there is. And because of that promise, we can live lives dedicated to God. Knowing that our eternity is secure in him. And that the temporary things don't matter. But the eternal does. One of the biggest things that I think we really need to trust in God is that God's going to come through for us and provide for our needs. 
Now, notice the word I said there was he's going to provide for our needs, all right? It's not like God is a genie and you can rub a lamp and all your, you know, you have three wishes that are going to come true or anything like that. The promise is that God will provide for our needs. Jesus in Matthew 6 is talking and he's encouraging his listeners, don't be anxious about anything. You don't need to be anxious about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what clothes you're going to wear. Jesus says, look at the birds. They don't sow, they don't reap, they just eat. God takes care of them. He says, look at the flowers of the field. Look how beautifully they're clothed, and yet they're here today, they're gone tomorrow. He said, those things are worth far less than you are. If God provides for those things, isn't he going to provide for your needs? He says, seek first the kingdom of heaven. All those things will be added. That's a promise. If we seek first God's kingdom, our needs are going to be provided for. I think of uh, early on in Sarah and I's marriage. We'd moved out here. We're both working part-time. I'm going to school full-time, and we have Jacqueline, who's not even a year old at this point, or around a year old. And so the bank account's not looking good, you know? It's just not. It's not looking good at all. In fact, rent's not looking real good for the month. And we were going to Seven Mile Road. It was down only in Malden at the time. And after service one day, uh, a man who goes to Seven Mile Road came up and handed us an envelope. And he said, hey, don't open that here, all right? I just wanted to give this to you. And so afterwards, we were at the Hess Station in in North Beverly uh, filling a tire up that had a hole in it. But we literally didn't have the money to repair it. And so... Uh, Sarah and I are sitting there, and she opens the card up. And in this card is, is a note from this man saying, I was praying, and as I was praying, God really laid it on my heart to give you this money. And it was $500 in that envelope. And we were floored. Like, that kind of stuff hadn't really happened yet at that point in our lives. And here's a man God is working through who speaks to him in prayer Give this couple $500. They need it. And we did. And that happened again not long after. Uh, This time it was total strangers. People we still don't even know who they are. Gave us $1,000. No idea who these people are. I know they live close to Gordon-Conwell. I know they're connected somehow in the Gordon-Conwell community. But they wanted to do it anonymously. It was a husband and wife. They were praying separately and as during their devotional times God spoke to them both to give us a thousand dollars again it was one of those like I don't think we're gonna make rent we're probably packing up and moving back to Colorado at this point like I have no idea how we're gonna make it and here's a thousand dollars see God is faithful to provide our for our needs he comes through in miraculous ways I know I've been in this church I've prayed with people I need a job. This happened not long ago, less than, or about a year ago. I think it was last summer. A gentleman and I were back there and we prayed. That week, he got a job, a good paying job with benefits and everything. And he was at the end. He was like, I'm running out of money at this point. I need a job. I need it bad. And man, we prayed and that job was there for him because God is faithful to provide for our needs. He's promised he will do it. He can do it, and therefore, even when times are tight, even when things are looking rough, 
we can still be faithful to God. We can still honor Him and worship Him because we know He is faithful to provide for our needs. Because He is faithful with all His promises to His children. God has also promised to work all things out for the good of those who love Him. We find that in Romans 8.28. Now that does not mean that it's going to be easy, right? I think we can all agree our lives are not necessarily easy, and we've certainly heard of Christians who have much harder lives than we do, and who've gone through much worse things than we have. And so it might, you know, that might seem like a strange promise, but the promise isn't that it's easy, but that it will be used for our good. It will be worked out for our good in the end. So sometimes losing a job, losing a loved one, a breakup in a relationship, all these things can be used for our good. When I was fresh out of college, uh, I had taken a job as a youth ministry intern. Now, if you don't know anything about my history, my undergraduate degree is in microbiology. My plan was to go to medical school. That's what I was pursuing fervently in college, and I had good grades. I was getting, you know, I was, I was working hard. I had one C plus in OCHEM, but I'd worked really hard to get a B plus in OCHEM too. Like, I had done these things. I was setting myself up well to go to med school. And midway through my junior year, I received a call. The, the Holy Spirit spoke to me to go into ministry. So I said, all right, that's what I'm going to do. And so I, I finished out my degree, but I didn't apply to any med schools. I took a job as a youth ministry intern, and it was a five-month internship. Now I'm thinking, I'm in good because the church I went to was a site of a mega church, right? There's this big church that's probably like 1,200 people, and our site has like 300 people in it. And I'm thinking, great, no problem. I've got this internship. I'll just come right in. I'll be the associate youth minister afterwards. It'll be a great time, and this is what I'm going to do. Well, some things happen. There ends up being a church split. We don't know where all the funds go necessarily. Uh, they're laying off people at the main campus, which means the two of us interns are definitely not getting permanent jobs. And so the internship comes and it, to an end, and I'm sitting there going, great, I have nothing. I, 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 I left, you know, what I was doing. I left pursuing medical school. I came out back to my hometown, which I swore I was never going to do, by the way. I'm like, I'm out in the middle of nowhere in eastern Colorado now, and I've got nothing. Like, man, God, this, this is, seems like a bit of a raw deal. I didn't have a good heart about it. I was more like Sarah's initial response. It was kind of that smirk, like, huh, this is what happens? This is, this is for my good? Really? And I end up getting a job at a railroad, and it's a small railroad in Denver. It's just a short-line terminal railroad. And it was a family-run operation, and it was a good job, but man, working on train cars out in the open field in February when it's 10 below is not my idea of fun. And so I'm sitting there and I'm just like, man, this goes for 18 months, by the way. For 18 months, I'm working for this railroad. And it, it's a tough time. But I can look back now, and even in the midst of it, I started to see how God was working things for my good. Because during that time, I got to know a young woman named Sarah. We started dating, we got married, you know the rest of it, we have four kids, we're here. It was during that time that God 
placed a call on me to move away from Colorado. Because I, I was kind of wanting to stay in the Denver area. If you ever been to Denver, it's great. The mountains are there. It's a big city. There's lots of things I like to do in that area. I had started to apply to Denver Seminary. And as I'm applying for it, I know God is telling me, don't apply for this. So like halfway through Denver Seminary's application, I like tear it up and throw it away. It wasn't really sure what was going on there, but then we went on a mission trip, kind of like the mission trips that came here, only we were in L.A. The, the team came up from Texas. We did the same thing, only we were going to Los Angeles. And I knew there that God is saying, you're not going to be in Colorado much longer. And about a year later, Sarah and I were married, and we move out to Massachusetts to go to Gordon-Conwell. And there we start going to Seven Mile Road, and at Seven Mile Road we meet the Thompsons, like the first month we were going there, I think. Joey and I connected right away. We, we got along well. We both had a heart to plant a church in this area. And so here we are, almost nine years later after that, and we, here we are, we're Restoration Road. I, I'm getting to do what God called me to do, but it took those 18 months to set all that up. And it was a hard time. It was a, a really hard time for me. I'm not going to lie about that. But God used it for my good. He used it to build my character. He used it to solidify that call. And he used it to bring me out here to plant a church in Wakefield alongside Joey. It's been a wonderful thing that he did through me through those hard 18 months. <clears throat> so once again, we've gone through three promises here. The Bible is full of promises that God has given to us. We must be motivated by God's faithfulness, to believe these promises. Because if we're going to live a life the way he has called us to live it, we have to be motivated by those promises and by God's faithfulness. Because if we are not sure that God is going to come through on his promises, then it's going to be really difficult to walk a life that is marked by faith. It's going to be much easier for us to do things in the natural way, to pursue things in our own strength and without prayer and without counsel, it's going to be really easy for us for, to hold on to our money instead of giving our money to the church and to missions and to the poor as God has commanded us to do. It's going to be really hard for us to live out a life that is Christian, that speaks of the glory of the cross, of the gospel, if we are not motivated by God's faithfulness. Because he does ask us to do hard things. There is no getting around that. It is not easy to live a life of faith but it will be impossible to live a life as God has called us to live if we are not motivated by his faithfulness. But God is faithful. That's the beauty of it all. God is faithful. And that should cause us to have great faith. It should cause us to have great joy. Because of his faithfulness, we can walk through this life knowing that our needs are going to be taken care of. That we can focus on God's kingdom instead of our own because we know God is going to take care of us. You know, it's God's faithfulness that motivates people to move not just Denver to Boston, but Denver to Africa or Denver to China or Boston or Wakefield to China or Africa or Australia or wherever God calls missionaries to. Because they know God is faithful, that in giving their lives for God, that he will reward them, he will take care of them. It's God's faithfulness that motivates us to mature. To leave sin behind. 
Because otherwise, if God isn't faithful, that sin looks pretty good in the time we're facing it. Like, man, whatever this is, it looks good now. Whether it be cheating on our taxes so that we have more money, or cheating our boss out of money, putting a little 15 minutes extra on that time card, or whatever that looks like, trying to get more money, or just being selfish with the money we do have. It's going to be very easy for us to do that instead of being generous, instead of trusting God if we're not convinced of His faithfulness. We must be motivated by that. Because we can do all these things I've talked about and we can do much more in God's kingdom and in our lives because we know that God is faithful to us. And let uh, that motivate us each day to live lives of faith and to live lives that please God. Pray with me.